Welcome to Grow, 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 Episode 3, titled Breaking Barriers, Creating an Inclusive Future in Higher Education. Our guest today is Matthew Krellen, Program Officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So a little bit of background. Um, in doing my work and all the work we do on programs, um, mm. I realized that there are many people who want to cut, you know, programs and stuff to save money. And I, you know, I've looked at that. We looked at the amount of money they'd save and so forth. And while it's not a bad idea, um, it just isn't a, a big idea. There's really no way to dig yourself out of the hole if you have a financial problem um, by cutting programs. Um, adding, yeah. Uh, but the only real way to solve financial problems in higher ed is to increase enrollment. Sure. Um, and so that leads to the next question. I ran into a few folks who had successfully done that. And they're, some of them are sort of implausible. They're small colleges were really nearly on death's door and some of them are bigger. You think of SNHU, um, but they've all been managed, managed to grow in this environment where people say, you know, growth is not possible, higher ed is shrinking and woe is me. Um, and so I'd like to kind of reverse that, uh, that tone and say, wait, no, you can grow. You have to do the right things, but there are plenty of people out there that need an education. And you, you have to know how to communicate to them and attract them and teach them and so forth. So that leads to the question of how do people grow? Um, mm, sure. And I thought it'd be interesting to get your perspective on that. And in particular, yeah. if you think about um, underrepresentation of minorities on campus, whether that's an enrollment or retention, uh, every student that doesn't come to college or doesn't stay in college is actually a lost revenue opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, so in addition to whatever, you know, good intentions you may have about being, you know, equitable and so forth, it's actually a financial hit uh, for not uh, recruiting those students and not keeping them. Yes, sure. Okay, yeah. So um, love to, yeah, love to just sort of share some thoughts on 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 that piece, um, you know, and, and I'll take those questions sort of and, and points sort of in order. Um, you know, the first is really about what you mentioned, Bob, about sort of enrollment strategies and, and growth. So one of the things that I think that we're seeing inside of an essential campus practice for institutional change, um, and in our, you know, again, in our parlance, we're calling that institutional transformation, um, you know, but for a lot of, but really what we're talking about is changes to the structure and culture and business model of an institution that allow you to do, um, you know, really just to, to focus in and, and to deliver on student success and to do so in an equitable way. Um, so there's a couple parts to that that actually I just want to take to uh, around your comments around enrollment growth. You know, the first is that um, right away, you know, there there are lots of missions. There's just ton of mission differentiation in higher education. Um, you know, sometimes the adage of you know you've seen one institution, you've seen one institution, sometimes rings true. Um, but I think you know generally, I believe that there's more that makes institutions similar than it, than they are different. So to capture this as sort of a, a general trend is is totally right. And actually, what I'd love to kind of bring in is something super topical. Um, that I was reading about uh, this morning, I believe, in, in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is that um, that there are really even just large, you know, larger institutions um, who are facing these types of challenges. Um, that this is not just simply, uh, you know, a 
uh, a challenge in enrollment growth that is somehow limited to um, you know institutions that are increasingly tuition dependent. It's actually you know talking across you know even major land grant types of institutions who are facing significant budget shortfalls because of declining enrollment. And part of what sort of I think you know necessitates that is, is there's there's a couple things. You know uh, the first is that higher ed enrollment has been dropping for about. 15 years. And, and by all trends, that's going to continue um, as populations age, as high school cohorts shrink. Um, it also reflects current sort of cultural and economic trends. Unemployment is historically low. Workers uh, feel as though they have lots of options. And there's a decline in confidence that, that higher ed really it, is delivering the value that it says that it delivers. So in terms of a strategy from the institutional side about growth, you know, we think about levers uh, for, for this concept of strategic finance applications across, I think, three dimensions. One is about it, uh, revenue um, just generation, uh, or, or excuse me, I should just say just resource generation, resource reallocation, and then financial planning and analysis. Uh, the latter of that tends to be not as robust a practice at most institutions, though there are ways to get better at that. Reallocation sort of is an exercise that, like you said, you know, while you can move things around and there are effective ways to, you know, sort of find the money for the initiative based on what you're start, uh, you know, starting or stopping or slowing or growing, depending on those different variables. But then you arrive to sort of what you're you're talking about, which is really sort of um, where a lot of focus, especially given some of the, the current headwinds, um, is rests right now, which is in this concept of resource generation. Um, and what I would say on the, the, the realities, uh, for the, the concept of, of, of really thinking about equitable student success as sort of the, as not just a driver of mission, but also a driver of margin, um, is that understanding, um, how to to really uh, think about your institution in the current context, in the current moment, um, if you really take a look at sort of all of the different factors around declining revenue, inability to, you know, really increase tuition, increasing costs of everything from goods and services to, you know, just um, inflation and so forth, all of those things really start to point to needing to be very strategic about the not just the resources that are generated, but where, why, for whom, to what all of those questions are essential. And it's really um, the bottom line is that concepts like, you know, just increasing retention, increasing completion um, really are, are good for both mission and margin. Um, so you can serve students equitably and that will actually yield the type of financial um, payoff that you hope for in addition to the mission payoff. And that's why when I think we talk about concepts like return on investment in higher education, we're talking about lots of different things, but we are certainly talking about at the very minimum, both of those things. Yeah. What tactics have you seen that have worked? Yeah, sure. So um, great question. Uh, let me start by just focusing in on maybe some high level kind of themes. And then I'll, I'll try to drill into some examples of where we've seen that. So I think, first of all, let's just kind of level set on a couple of things, you know, right away, which is that good, like what does good look like in this? And so often that gets equated with things like um, in a financial sense, like a balanced budget. 
Um, and budget balancing is an essential element, but it doesn't focus on the more essential question, which is what was achieved in use of those resources and thinking about that balance. So right away, we're, we're recognizing that outcomes-based focus on, on this type of financial application about what works moves us toward this understanding of return on investment. And that means a lot of different things for different stakeholders. For students, that reflects their investment of dollars and time uh, toward completion for an institution that might focus more on net revenue uh, for a system that could avoid, uh, you know, that, that could mean avoiding duplicating services. Um, and, and for a state, that might mean ROI in an increasingly educated citizenry. Um, all of those things live on a continuum. And so where we start to see that actually some of that pays off is, are in a couple things. So when we think about sort of catalysts for things like equity, um, uh, diversity, inclusion initiatives in higher ed. Those include things like disaggregated measurements of student success or the establishment of different DEI personnel um, that the senior leaders have a vision for equity um, in their institutional identity and culture. Um, there's also things where you can see institutions who are still grappling with how to define and implement those reforms to advance equity and, and thereby um, equitable student success. Um, so, and then where I think we see some of those examples um, is that the level of integration there um, is essential across all areas of the institution. So for, for some, um, for institutions that were um, in our uh, frontier set initiative. So this is a, by way of a um, footnote on that, this was a multi-year uh, Gates Foundation-sponsored initiative involving 29 uh, colleges and universities in two state systems. And in particular, they were already doing some very accelerated, interesting things on the equitable student success uh, and transformation front. We wanted to not only learn from that, but also understand how those efforts could be further catalyzed. So at some in of those institutions, they focused on equity centers that identified barriers to student success that allow that institution to close equity gaps. Um, other uh, community colleges that were in the completion by design initiative, which is sort of the precursor to the uh, frontier set, um, and and really was a landmark study on sort of uh, on on student success and completion. Um, really focused uh, th those institutions focused on the better use of disaggregated data for decision making professional development uh, of, of their staff to understand how to embed uh, equity into their decision-making processes. Um, other institutions that were at APLU considered culturally responsive uh, approaches to improve the student experience. And some of those even implemented um, initiatives to enhance those experiences for, for even for faculty and staff as well. And then others um, certainly do look to the outside to bring in consultants to help establish institutional priorities, um, and overall, I think what we've also found lastly is really in the power of networks, um, that institutions that are part of networks that are sort of going on this journey together really do have an opportunity to learn how their efforts to address equity gaps and promote the success of diverse student populations is coming together and to learn from one another. So I think all over, we've seen a, a couple of different examples that are really uh, quite robust um, in terms of where that focus and institutional commitment to ensure equitable student success outcomes happens uh, across all uh, demographics. So I think seeing those things show up in some of the frontier set work that we've engaged in really points uh, toward this, this use of data, this use of um, 
uh, really just catalytic leadership um, and cross-functional collaboration to drive that commitment. And that commitment always ends up sort of translating into um, pretty significant gains. Um, the frontier set institutions and completion by design institutions uh, set goals for, for equitable student success. And in terms of meeting and exceeding those goals, um, really the results have been quite robust. And, and uh, the point I would leave you with is that on that piece, um, is that it's not an accident. Um, all of these institutions have made very considered, uh, considered um, the data, uh, have considered really sort of their strategies and approaches and have used that, bringing that forward um, uh, to drive their growth strategies. So uh, in some ways it sounds simple and it's, it's a lot harder to do uh, in context, I, I grant you that. Um, there are some things that I think really are happening um, in terms of enrollment trends when when that gets a little disaggregated, um, that we actually start to see, especially after COVID-19, sort of what started to happen um, you know, to students uh, across different sectors. So let me see if I can summarize. Um, yeah. When you think about institutional transformation and fundamentally increasing the number of underrepresented students on a campus, that there are four, I'll call them macro drivers. Uh, one is institutional commitment. Mm -hmm. uh, another is catalytical, catalytic leadership. Mm -hmm. um, a third would be the use of data throughout the process to identify what works and what doesn't. And then finally, um, it's a cross-functional effort. Um, and I think it's also, a, by the way, a longitudinal effort, right? In the sense of it's multiple functions over a long period of time to get a student from high school uh, through graduation at college and on into a job. Um, yes. So lots of people need to tend to that along the way. Um, are there particular initiatives within that, that things that people did that seem to work? Yeah, sure. So in terms of what then, you know, I, I think sort of the, the, the question about um, what worked in that is, is, is really fascinating because I think of that as um, something that we were learning about very intentionally in the frontier set, which was how do people and tools and methods and resources actually help with transformation? And how do, how do people really contribute to that? Um, so, so across these case studies that we looked at at the frontier set, um, uh, we, what we did is we looked at a lot of different key themes regarding institutional personnel and tools and other things and the competencies and the conditions and the structures that all contributed to the effectiveness of, of institutional transformation. And there were a lot of sort of key themes. Um, the, the most cited key personnel um, in terms of drivers for that were actually like IR and IT staff. It was a lot of middle, mid, what we call like mid-level sort of individuals, deans, associate deans. And then certainly you had, you know, um, uh, folks who were in the uh, sort of, um, you know, kind of that cabinet tier, you know, provosts, vice provosts, chancellors, um, and then of course faculty. Um, and the most identified roles of key leadership were were really about establishing communication channels and then marshalling resources. And so um, it was no it, it should be noted also that most of these institutions, really kind of all of them, were engaged in data driven decision making. And there were examples of both centralized and de and, and decentralized decision making. Um, centralized was used most for resource allocation, strategic planning, and student supports. Uh, decentralized decision making was most 
was was most used also then for just resource allocation generally as well. Um, so what you started to see um, what, in terms of then the different themes about sort of what generally worked, um, you know, it, it depended on the type of institution that we were looking at, but generally we're looking at um, a, a couple of different processes, like in addition to the the people um, themselves and, and really thinking about different uh, interventions and supports then that that were really critical, um, you know, to driving that process. So things like um, really just student advising became, and I think especially in the last couple of years, ended up becoming extremely important. Um, adaptive learning, uh, changes to placement criteria, um, developmental education reforms, uh, digital learning, gateway course redesign, program maps were huge um, in the thing. And then just really streamlining the student experience and, and tutoring centers and academic support. So, so for example, in some of these you know, when I when I look at sort of the the you know tables, if you will, about sort of what was happening across all of these frontier set institutions, nearly all of them were engaged in advising reform. Nearly all of them engaged in developmental education reform and digital learning. And then you sort of really had a handful that were really playing around. Um, then next with program maps and streamlining the student experience. And so the the other practice that I think that we saw it was really essential was about what you mentioned, which was about sort of cross-campus or cross-functional collaboration. And so um, at some of the institutions that we looked at, uh, we really saw that mid-level and senior-level leaders noted that effective communication was critical um, to develop a sense of ownership over student success initiatives and facilitate that transformation. Um, in addition, mid-level leaders described often the importance of framing initiatives and related work appropriately to secure buy-in. Um, for example, um, at one institution, uh, advisors initially resisted monitoring student re-enrollment um, because they thought that was actually somebody else's job. They thought that was sort of the strategic enrollments uh, sort of staff uh, work. Um, however, advisors understood eventually uh, through this communication why they should look at that re-enrollment data after mid-level leaders framed that task as part of their that advisor's role in mentoring and ensuring timely progress toward a degree. Um, there was also evidence that existed um, that, that these components come together really through stakeholder collaboration. So uh, across, for example, another institution, a, a cross-functional uh, cross-divisional advising um, council actually met, uh, I think it was annually, um, to set advising processes and procedures. And this group included advisors and faculty members and representatives from different developmental education programs. Um, and that previous data collection didn't indicate that IR and IT were in those discussions. And now as they are, you're seeing all of the, you know, you're seeing this translation happen. And so one of the things that becomes really critical in this is actually this, and, and, and Bob, as you know, it's like really, I know it's near and dear to your heart, but it's just really taking that data and, and turning that into information um, and being able, um, for example, at, a, at, a, at another institution um, uh, that mid-level identify with that. What, 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 oh, 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 sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, what, you know, when you say change it into information, what kinds of information, what is it you really need to know? Yeah, sure. So, so in terms of the data capacity, um, one of the things that we've been seeing at, at, at in institutional research is that 
that there are steps to make, first of all, like general student success metrics, um, in, not just in terms of uh, completion, you know, uh, enrollment, retention, sort of the, the general pieces, but even now you're starting to see concepts like um, ROI metrics even start to come in where, uh, you know, again, that's just a type of data. Um, you know, really, it's just sort of we're, we're just taking a different met metric and we're looking about the financial contributions to things like um, student retention. Um, and if we apply sort of that same, you know, sort of business model set around um, value creation and customer segments and channels, like there's analog um, for sure in, in higher education. And the 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 metrics and the data that that were being looked at um, initially for a lot of the institutions we, we you know you'd see this proliferation of data that generally didn't but that didn't accompany a strategy for how to democratize that data so the use of interactive dashboards um that covered those things like uh enrollment degrees awarded course enrollment semester credit hours um each of those dashboards allowed the user then to disaggregate data by identity and status and and others um have been using uh, that data for decision-making um, at the departmental level, um, which is then reinforced by a focus on student-level data um, in, in processes such as budgeting. So some of those, those pieces that we're starting to see about sort of the, then the data capacity um, is actually starting to show up then inside of senior leadership conversations. So for example, at another institution, um, their institutional research and effectiveness office uh, provides an annual report um, to their executive committee that analyzes the institution's performance on the objectives of its strategic plan. Um, so th taking those things and then at directly responding to that. And so many respondents reported that those executive leaders, namely provost and the president, rely on those data that are included in the annual report to bring up to the board and to inform their decision-making processes. And so one of the things I think that we're starting to see is that the, the IR functions are really relying on dashboards in order to increase access to data and often highlighting, um, you know, using a collaborative approach to sharing data in lieu of those traditional silos that allow then everybody to kind of look at the same thing and identify interventions that could promote student success. So in another example, um, at another uh, another institution in Florida, there was a uh, Office of Data and Strategic Pro Projects, which, um, works with its integrated planning and analytics areas, focusing specifically on monitoring um, student progress as it's related to their initiatives on their campus. So you're starting to see where not only people have access to this data, but there are two other kind of critical components. One is just the sense-making that has to come off of that. And that that sense-making secondly can't happen inside of a silo. It can't happen inside of the same vertical. That it's really about looking at that data, doing some, some questions, chasing, insights, intuition, and then really kind of bringing that back together in a sense-making conversation with others on the campus to actually start to craft the, the appropriate initiative or response that's going to be right for that institution to promote its uh, student success agenda. Interesting. Um, now, uh, I'm going to take you down my one of my favorite rabbit holes. Um, yeah. Uh, I think the key ingredient, a, a potential key ingredient here is students enabling students to be successful? Um, mm -hmm. I think we we may have, if you will, institutionalized this a little bit too much. Um, yeah. And I think I've given you all my analogies on this, so I won't go through them again. But 
Um, have you seen any student-driven initiatives that have really made a difference in retention? Oh, wow. Um, so, so yeah, so, so this is actually, in terms of student-driven initiatives, I mean, I think that's, I, I think that's a, um, you know, I think it's a fascinating question because where, you know, a lot of the frontier set work hasn't actually, you know, specifically discussed or looked at how sort of students are pushing those processes. Um, generally, they are sort of focused as the institution, as the, as the unit of change. But I think we are starting to see where students are really taking ownership of their academic experiences and that those that that experience is actually sort of then branching out into the institution um, and really thinking about its own identity and its culture. In terms of, you know, specific initiatives that students have have run, I, I think one thing that that is that I've seen at a couple of of institutions that that we've looked at and we've been fortunate to have, um, you know, some students uh, come in and do some panels, uh, you know, with us at the foundation is actually learning how they are advocating for their own experiences um, inside the institution beyond, you know, beyond, um, you know, things like, uh, you know, the, the the cost of attendance or just general sort of, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, things, but really getting into the specifics of, of the institution and, and really advocating for their success um, and thinking about sort of how do, how is student representation uh, being captured in initiatives that discuss the, the institution's future and its offerings. What it, what types of responses are happening when an institution decides to change some of its structure? Are they consulting students uh, about this effort? Another area that has really come up lately is actually thinking deeply about students weighing in on their experience, uh, particularly in online and hybrid modalities uh, for education, and actually thinking about the, the student experience from and I guess in terms of from as it comes from a retention piece, sometimes the, the the intermediary between that I think is often the the learning management system uh, or other types of things that that student is interacting with in order to to sort of broker that experience. And then what ends up happening is those systems are or aren't set up really for the student and to meet them where they are at. And so I think one thing that this strikes me as uh, in a macro sense, Bob, is there's something really to be said about right now getting an ear to the ground about what it is that students are really looking for and how are they sort of experiencing education, particularly as institutions are transforming, as the the interior uh, economies of those institutions begin to change with all of the sort of aforementioned challenges on academia's doorstep, but then also sort of exogenous forces that I think, you know, at this point, we we really have to take a look at and think, wow, how is this going to change the face of education, um, artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, things of that nature that really are already um, not years away, but months. And the, we're here, the thing, really. we're already here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, I don't know if you've had a chance to, um, you know, really just even look at some of these tools, but I, I will say it, I'm sure you have, and I'm, and I, I suspect, uh, like yourself, you know, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, it took me, um, about two minutes, but to, to figure out like, oh yeah, this is going to really just radically change a lot.
So I, anyway, Bob, I think just to answer that last one, I don't know of a ton of like student to student, um, you, you know, types of initiatives. Yeah. I know that in, in some of these cases, there have been some really interesting, you know, scenarios where actually you start to see more like students doing sort of research uh, on themselves or their communities inside of that campus, particularly connected to things like campus climate and, you know, uh, and so forth. But but really the, the point being that students, I think, are actually in their value propositions getting much more savvy about their success as part of all of this. You know, before I think the narrative was about, um, you know, just sort of you know, other elements of, of the sort of the, the college experience. And now there is a focus really on um, the, the value proposition. And I think that that's, that's, it's not that it's unique or new, but it does seem renewed. Um, and it does seem to have yeah. a bit more emphasis these days, at least that's what I'm sensing. Well, now we're going to get into more of a debate than an interview, but I, I think a lot of that is, um, you know, blaming others um you know why isn't the university doing x y and z uh i've i've just always wanted to take the time to research this and i've never done it but i did i have heard these anecdotes about places where the student um the students actually took on this role uh, without prompting um where the upperclassmen were uh of a given race and in this case actually the story that i heard was about black students uh, I think it may be Rio Grande College in Texas. And okay. um, they were mentoring freshmen coming in. Um, and, you know, without anybody asking, they invited them to things. They gave them some ad advice on, uh, you know, professors to take and professors to avoid. And their graduation rate for Black students, I think it's up in the 90s. Um, no kidding. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, great. Now, when I checked on it, it was a small, you know, cohort. But uh, that's a very good graduation rate at a white liberal arts college, right? I mean, uh, so- 90% is good for anywhere, yeah. Yeah, it's good for anywhere, right. for any group. Um, yeah. So uh, it also fits a, a way of looking at higher ed that I think, you know, we, we it's very easy to rely too much on the idea that I'm going to be taught instead of I'm going to learn. Um, mm. Something's going to show me how to do this instead of I'm going to figure out how to do it. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I ran across this. I, I've told if I've told you this before, stop me. But, you know, at Harvard, they they run 52 shows a year at the average public university. They have one or two. Mm. Um, so if you want to become an actor, you can go to your local school and take drama or you go to Harvard and be in plays. There's no drama. Right. Department at Harvard. Right. Yeah. Right? You just do so, it. Mm -hmm. Well, they externalized it, if you will. And the students yeah. picked it up. And so, and by the way, a bunch of famous actors that, you know, I didn't realize went to Harvard did. Um, and I can never remember their names, but um, uh, gosh, the, the most famous, uh, w w Tommy Lee Jones is the one you would not expect. Oh, yeah. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, lived with, a bunch lived, of others. Lived with Al, I think he lived with Al Gore, funny enough, if I remember right. In, oh, really? In, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's just that's amazing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, and you know, and and so it's interesting because, like, for those students, you know, you're you're in the sweet spot of, you know, sort of initiative, you know, sort of self initiative, drive, resources, like all of the, you know, right, like the peer effects of being then with others who, sort of, are are in that similar, if not, if not mind space, that then, sense then of belonging, 
that sense right? of belonging exactly the, the, yeah. the process itself reinforces a sense of belonging um, yes right and i think it benefits up and down i think the people who are 100%. mentoring are gonna their odds of completing are going up because they're mentoring as much as it is the students who are being mentored um no no question so yeah i mean i think you know anytime you're seeing those those peer effects sort of manifest themselves inside a, an institution it not only for a lot of students is what you know it, it's a oh gosh i mean right it, it's certainly a crown in the jewel of the experience is sort of being able to have that that social component especially to a residential you know type of education right um and what's great is i think that you know those those elements for a long time i think got seen as like ancillary but not like necessary or they were like nice to do but not critical and i think what's what what you're alluding to in a lot of ways is that that experience is showing more and more i think in in research and other things as 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 that gets more understood and even in the light of things like COVID-19 and the desire to return to campus and have those experiences, um, you know, all of those point, I think, to the the idea that that campus climate, that DE&I, that senses of belonging and inclusion, psychological safety, all of those things, they're, they're critical um, to sort of the experiences. In fact, I think about um, some of the surveys that were coming out of um, the American Council on Education's uh, sort of pulse surveys that they were doing during COVID-19 of, of college presidents and provosts and kind of asking them, hey, what's sort of top of mind for you these days? Um, and, you know, they, you know, there was like the usual talk of, you know, the business model and, you know, and how are we going to keep things open and enrollment? But but number one for a long time um, during during that period and still is, is really the the the, the mental health, the wellness, emotional safety, et cetera, of, of students, faculty, and staff, and, and really recognizing and seeing that actually rise up as a pretty notable trend um, is interesting. And I think that when you talk about things like um, upperclassmen mentoring, you know, uh, freshmen and sophomores, or you talk about setting up those types of uh, cohorts or, or what have you, or, the, you know, the, the um, you know, just your, um, you know, your campus friends, your campus buddy sort of thing, like what, however that's institutionalized, et cetera, and all those supports that exist to actually not just make this experience, you know, enjoyable, but really is to think about how do we make it successful? Um, mm -hmm. That's a really, that's, that, that's not, and I guess maybe I'll just, all I'll say on it is that while many flavors exist, none of them are by accident. Um, they all sort of get some development, like you said, whether it's with students kind of coming up with the idea, um, Goodness, I've, I've, you know, I had a really lovely conversation actually with a, uh, with a, a dean of students um, at an institution who talks about just sort of like uh, that they they couldn't really implement uh, chatbot technology yet. They're just sort of they're you know they're just you know just need time and resources. But what they could do is they could pay a couple of students, uh, you know, their work study stipends to be sort of on the other end of a. Uh, you know, live chat FAQ uh, that students would go to to send their questions in and redirect. And so so the point being is like whether you're using the technology to sort of, you know, mediate the experience or it's truly just one to one on one human to human interaction. God that forbid. stuff. God forbid. <laughs> um, that stuff matters, which is which is great.
Yeah, you'd love to see. There's a program at, I think it's University of California, Santa Barbara, where they yeah. trained a bunch of folks to be uh, first-line uh, psych support um, for students. Um, oh, interesting. And, uh, you know, very successful, tremendous impact on campus and all the metrics you'd expect, um, you know, and, and, and has to be uh, thought through, you know, in a sense because you've got to make sure that uh, apparently the first question they get just as an example is is this a, a bot or is it a human and they'd have That's to right. prove that they were a human um and then <laughs> they had to be invited you know they weren't they they didn't I, i'm getting something that says you're requesting to record this now i'm not quite oh sure. i i i hit the wrong button um i thought i canceled that just sorry about that oh that's okay i just uh, i want to make sure i don't lose the recording um but uh you know they the, I, again, it's the idea of students helping students, in this case, yes. paid in a structured program run by the institution, um, but very much uh, delivered by students. Um, so That's right. I don't know. It's just one of those things I'd like to, I personally would love to go out and find more examples um, in the spirit of confirmation bias, I think. Uh, I think that's fair. Yeah, you know, that's a good one. Be, uh, uh, I think very helpful. Um, I don't suppose I would, you know, anyway, I, I'm sure there are counterexamples too. If you think about all the dysfunctional things that have happened around, say, uh, fraternities on campus, right? On the one uh -huh. hand, they do establish links into the institution for many students. On the other hand, they often do it in a way that it's uh, not so great. That's uh, right. Sure. So. All right. Anything else I should have asked you that I didn't? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> well, well know, you know, know one, one other thing. Know. At what Go other growth? You, you travel the industry a lot. What other things yeah. have people done to spur growth that uh, might not be at all related to anything we've talked about so far? Oh wow. Um, hmm. Let me think about that for a second. For for growth, well, you know, I think one thing that that I would that I would say is. <sighs> um. Okay, so so one thing that was really interesting when I think about this actually is what what came out of um, COVID nineteen in terms of student and institutional decision making and impacts on enrollment. Um, so, by the way, one thing that I'd love to do after this is I can send you a, a presentation, um, and this is actually coming from a grant that I made to some researchers out of USC and University of Michigan. And what they were doing was they took a look at, um, so, so one thing that the Gates Foundation has, has sponsored really heavily is uh, a initiative out of the National Student Clearinghouse called the Post-Secondary Data Partnership, which mm -hmm. is basically, um, you probably heard of it, but the, the short answer here is that it's basically an elective uh, initiative that is designed to capture uh, more information um, on, on student level information and be able to make that information available um, you know, to, to researchers and the clearinghouse in order to really just start to, to answer questions that so the data sets. So it's the student clearinghouse student what? Sure, it's the post-secondary data partnership or um, PDP is, is what we call this. And so it's wor certainly worth a look, but, um, but, but what, this grant was was with a team of researchers who had um, we could basically the clearinghouse granted them access to utilize this information uh, set 
in order to actually answer a question around uh, what were the enrollment impacts coming out of COVID-19? How did sort of the dust settle? And being able to look at not only just the migration of students, you know, um, and did they drop out, stop out, uh, transfer, complete, et cetera, the usual sort of things that the clearinghouse collects. But the PDP also does this by race, ethnicity, by other sort of disaggregates. So we can actually start to take a look um, across uh, those things. So one thing that I can do is this presentation that I'll send you from Jerry Lucido and Ruben Cap uh, is public. Um, the, the good news is uh, one thing with the foundation is uh, all we do is create public goods. You know, right, exactly. All, yeah, right. Like all this information is out there. So as soon as we have it, I can send it out um, and would be happy to do so. But but let me give you the kind of the, the top notes. And, and that is that um, they spent time uh, taking a look at uh, – Gosh, I mean, they did they did a uh, focus group interviews and followed up with methodology on that. But but really, the universe of students that they were looking at was something like two thousand institutions representing, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of students. So it's a very representative sample. Um, and what we sort of learned from that were everything from what were the impacts on enrollment trends, but also things like test optional and test free policies and recruitment strategies and financial aid strategies and and so forth and what you'll see in the um in the powerpoint is they break that out by the the different sort of sectors so they talk about what were what was happening at less selective public four years versus highly selective public four year versus private versus community colleges um and really thinking about the way that test optional policies kind of came in and how did that change recruitment um, and were they able to, you know, uh, for example, one institute at a pri uh, private highly selective said, hey, you know, we were able to buy certain names because we were test optional. 1,300 SAT student names, they never bought in the past or 1,200s, but now they're buying names that are not usually in their average test score rank. So now it's, it's changing this sort of th this expectation, and there's a lot of um, desire to want to do more comprehensive work on trying to understand what happened. But institutions also were trying out some new approaches on sort of not just having on-demand content, but live content and opportunities to connect with faculty and staff and partner across campus. And, um, you know, really seeing, you know, everything from, you know, just sort of different, you know, moving from merit to need more heavily, targeting financial aid a little bit more deliberately, um, the way that uh, some of the higher ed, uh, you know, uh, federal money that was coming in, um, were asking it, uh, you know, students were, that stimulus money was was critical, but they need to plan beyond that, and really thinking about sort of all of those those impacts. And so, I think what's really interesting is um, you'll see sort of this, and if you if if anything in this presentation, by the way, just sort of piques interest, and you're like, wait a second, I want the double click on, you know, that piece. I, I'd be happy to get, you know, either you know, everything from get more information on that to, to, to write up to put you, putting you in touch with those researchers because they, that this is, is the stuff that, they, yeah, this is the stuff they love. They actually want this information out in public. They don't feel like a sense of like, they just kind of said, hey, we just put this data together. We want everybody else to interpret it and build off of it as they will. It's public information. It's just, I don't think it's gotten a lot of splash yet just because they're not like officially done. I know they're going to want to, uh, if I understand right, you know, sort of go to the Chronicle and Inside Higher Ed and others um, when when their final report's ready, but but certainly nothing wrong with giving you a first look, um, you know, at, at any of that. And I think Absolutely. if there's anything in there, 
Yeah, if there's anything in there that piques information uh, or interest for you, Bob, just let me know. I'm yeah. happy and, to put you in um, touch with those guys. I, I'm happy to give them a little advanced press from, in my vast social media empire. Um, <laughs> you know, I, have, I think I have three followers. Um, hey! So, um, <laughs> that's awesome. But, uh, you know, that sounds fascinating. I'm also always interested in new databases. So okay. um, we do a lot of work with, well, with data from NCES. Um, yep. And, uh you know, I, I, one of the questions is what else should we be doing? Um, either getting more data or analyzing in ways we haven't thought of. So, um, I so now. yeah, check, I mean, definitely check out the PDP, um, yep. you know, and, and in terms of a data set, uh, and then if, if there is anything that's more in that, that is interesting to you in that, that, you know, it says, Hey, we'd love to know, is there a way to work with X or Y or can, you know, where are our reports on? Um, if I, if I don't, I mean, I'm familiar with it, but I'll tell you what, if I don't know it, I can put, I can get it from the person who, who runs that project on the gate side uh, for right. you. So, I mean, really it's, it's, um, this is one of our sort of flagship pieces that we've invested a lot in and, um, I, I'd, I'd say we have more than a vested interest in, in people using it. So, um, so sure. Perfect. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will, uh, we'll, I'll check that out and see, see where uh, I'll look at the article, the, the stuff you send me first. Um, that'll yep, probably I'll tell me that. a lot about PDP and then see if there's something in PDP that we want to be getting at more directly. Um, Love it. Sounds you know, good. It'll cost us money, but we'll get over it. Sure. <laughs> For some reason, they don't give their data away. I don't understand that. Um, oh, listen, I, uh, I, that's um yeah right. <laughs> oh, that's another punch. <laughs> so, hey, uh, one one thing at a time. I I was I was actually joking in the sense that I don't you know given our business I'm I don't think anybody should ever give data away. But uh, uh, yeah yeah so. no you know well it's you know I, yeah and and then this is the the foundation person in me talking about just like oh no but like oh gosh that powers so many interesting things and couldn't you just know more so anyway I I. And yeah, you know, here full circle, right? <laughs> well, um, a little bit of a new topic. Uh, sure, and, um, this is you know very self-serving. So, um, but uh, I think it's a common purpose. So we're in the course of chasing a lead at uh, a, a place that you guys have worked with too, Mesa Community College. But more, oh yeah, in Mar Maricopa. Um, oh yep. Okay. The, the district, and. Yep. Um, I think the logic of this goes something like this. Um, Maricopa went to build some systems of its own. Um, I can't remember which one it was. They might've done in partnership with you and it kind of failed. Um, yeah. You know, and the idea was that they were gonna be able to take that out and, you know, sell it, if you will, to other schools. Um, can't remember what the system actually was now. Uh, it'll come to me. We're in discussions with them about building, a, you know, doing our economics platform for them. Okay. Um, and that will fundamentally set up a reporting infrastructure where we can produce reports on essentially anything that's got a student ID attached to it. Nice. Um, yeah. You know, cause that's the, the foundation that data set for us is student, you know, the student, the faculty member, you know, the IDs, they're all disguised in our, before we get them. But, um, and then we attach costs and revenues to each of those units, but because it's captured at that very granular level, we can aggregate it all sorts of different ways. So uh, if you think about it, I can look at a student in a course and say, okay, what's the revenue attributed to that course based on what the student paid and what discounts they got. Mm -hmm. Then I can add that now that I know it's by that for that student in that course, I can add it up to the department the course is in. Yep. I can add it up to the uh, program the student is in. 
I can add it up to sports team that student participated on, mm -hmm. right? I can add it up to their ethnicity or gender. Um, so the, the, the number of different ways we can slice and dice that um, is enormous um, to answer various different questions. So my theory on this is, and, and where we're going to go as a company, kind of irrespective of whatever comes out of this dialogue and many others, we're going to start ex extending across the institution to do dashboards in other areas besides just yeah. academic programs. Um, as you think about this, what we want, what we're going to build, it should be useful to any community college, not just them. Yeah. And most of it will yep. be useful actually to any college at all, um, whether it's community college or something else. Um, so hidden in here somewhere is the opportunity to create the one infrastructure, if you will, at least for dashboards. I'm not interested in getting into, you know, maybe some time in the future, but for now, it's a matter of going into information systems, getting the data out and being able to provide reports on critical issues and particularly critical decisions. Um, and, uh, you know, if there's a way to do that where partnering and scale can matter, um, I'd be all ears. Um, I think there's, a, there's an opportunity here to have a healthy business um, at relatively lower cost than people can do it themselves. Yep. Um, and, you know, honestly, Maricopa has the scale by itself uh, to make that possible. And Great. the way I would design it, I think, um, obviously I'm in, I'm not even in early stages, I'm in pre-early stages, um, would be one price for membership. Um, and then the members tell us what they want to build and we build it with a budget set aside every year for this percentage of revenue is going to go into development. Um, and that way they keep getting a better product, richer product, mm -hmm. same price. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that works pretty well for a software company. Yeah, I'd say so. And well, you know, what, what's more is I'm thinking too now on the, um, Oh gosh, you know, the demand side for a second on, on something like that. And, um, you know, what I can at least explain is sort of what we're setting up inside of our own ecosystems and where mm -hmm. I think there's actually some interesting overlap is so, so one of the theories of change here in all this is that we, we think that institutions can accelerate their rate of transformation for equitable student success when they are provided supports from reform-oriented intermediaries and service providers, essentially, um, to, to help facilitate and, and organize and drive and sustain that approach, um, really through the institution kind of then adopting a continuous improvement mindset and then being able to access these resources as those questions, as those things change in real time. So, so right away, what you said about sort of, Hey, we get, get together, you, you know, here's your price. We're going to build sort of to, to some specification with some degrees of freedom here, right? Like just sort of what you're looking for. Yeah. And I think what, and I, and what's interesting about that approach, Bob, as you said that is, and, and I, I'll speak for just a second in the limited terms of the the foundation's sort of um, ecosystem hypothesis here, and then maybe we can extrapolate out to the broader, you know, sort of total market for a second. But but within that box, one of the things that they will be doing is 
those intermediaries will basically do some sort of assessment, you know, across those institutions that they're going to be working with of their needs. And then they and then everybody sort of combines those assessments together and they look at grouping uh, or cohorting those institutions based on some some defining characteristic. One of those I, I'm pretty sure, is, at least that is going to be around sort of data capacity, things of that nature, getting sense of that information. But then what do you want to do with it when it comes time to implementing those types of reform efforts and initiatives and solutions at, a, at an institution? So that is to say, right away, one of the, the incentives inside of this is that those institutions and the intermediaries really need to pool their dollars together in order to kind of work on a similar thing and learn together. And we believe that approach is actually, it allows those institutions to do things further and faster because we really saw in initiatives like completion by design and the frontier set really the power of networks um, and how much more those institutions can accomplish if they are part of an initiative in particular uh, and not limited to the fact that that initiative gives them air cover. Um, it allows them the time and the bandwidth and the resources to actually explore some of these topics when they are connected to an in initiative and that initiative is um, subscribed to by lots of lots of other institutions as well. So one thing that is interesting about the the piece that you're saying also is that it completely feeds into I think what we've seen in the frontier set around those critical unlocks for transformation, per, particularly in in the data space and even particularly then in the dashboard space, which is sort of you know there was this and you know this I mean there was this sense you know, uh, not all that long ago, where the answer sort of from a lot of places seemed to be, just go get the data, just build the thing, build the cloud, put it all in the same place, and uh, that will eventually solve all your problems. And then we learned, of course, that is, in fact, you know, not uh, <laughs> how it works. <laughs> but it's a, it's a wonderful first step. Next question is now, well, hey, how do I make sense of all of this? And, and to your point, so so right away, I can tell you, we're organizing for that type of uh, approach, frankly. I, but and so I think back to our early conversation about when we we're going to have some institutions and intermediaries who are going to probably want to do exactly this. And quite frankly, we're kind of banking on it. But I also think just generally in the the broader field or the broader market that this is this is extremely applicable, and institutions are really thirsty for this stuff. I remember hearing a quote one time that sort of stuck with me, which was that uh, it was about sort of futurists. And it was just saying that all that futurists are, are really good at reading the present. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> there actually is no crystal ball, but what they are really good at is reading the now. And I think if you can get into a stance that helps those institutions read the now, you know, then you're able to tee them up for the long term. Part two coming up. To a theater yeah. near you. Okay. <laughs> well, and thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me about growth. Um, hey, you will, you will find it in a book coming to a place near you, but probably not very soon. <laughs>